You may be seated. Well, good morning, Hope Fellowship. My name is Jeff Brewer. I'm one of the pastors here, and I know that this has been a significant week here in the life of our church as our family has announced me stepping away from the lead pastor role and taking a, word, a, a job with Word Partners. And as Jared said, we're going to be up front afterwards here this morning. We'd love to talk more and answer any questions if you weren't able to be with us on Thursday or like he said, if questions have come up that we can talk more about. And so uh, I'm glad that we're going to be here until the summer as a family before, Lord willing, we relocate to Cincinnati where Jen's family is. And we're we're trusting the Lord with you that he's going to provide in the midst of that transition. And so I do just want to say, and I'm going to keep saying this because I feel this so deeply. It, it, what a privilege it is to be your pastor, to be one of your pastors, and to have you receive us, and more importantly, the way you receive the word each week. And so we love this church deeply, and we love you, and we feel loved by you. And so um, you know, with that, I want to read, call, take us to the book of Colossians, and just so, kind of a little bit of a roadmap. I'll be preaching each week, except for on February 20th. Here throughout the month of February, we'll be spending some time here in Colossians 3. Jared will preach on the 20th of February, and then I'll be overseeing the preaching of the Word until the summer and preaching a few times along the way. And so, uh, have, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Colossians 3. We're just going to focus on verses 5 through 9, but I'm going to read 3, 1 through 17. So, Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for this privilege that we have 
to come before you and to listen to your word. We thank you that you do not leave us alone. You have given to us your Holy Spirit who ministers to us, ministers to our needs, the needs that we have and the the groanings that he can express with words that we can't even express. And so, Father, we thank you that we have this comforter. We thank you that we have this privilege of being able to listen and be able to hear and to be able to put your word into practice. We are no longer dead in our sins. We've been made alive because we've put our faith in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would enliven our hearts all the more, that you would enable us to put to death the deeds of the body, that which is earthly within us. Pray for clarity this morning as I preach pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whose name I pray. Amen. I said I was going to drink that bottle and it was going to squirt all over me and it it just went up my nose, so I apologize about that if I look a little distracted. Well, This week I looked up a few lists of the top 10 bad habits that people struggle with. And every list was basically the same. The number one bad habit was always smoking. Most lists had bad habits like stress eating or stress shopping on them. Surprisingly, a lot of the lists, and I have no idea why this would be on the list, they had drinking too much coffee as a bad habit. I mean, really. (laughs) Is that possible? You know, there were gross habits that made every list, like picking your nose or biting your fingernails. Alcohol and swearing rounded out the top ten. You know, all of us, whether they're on that list or not, have bad habits that we would like to change. But as we come again to Colossians 3 here this morning, we're going to talk about something that goes beyond the mere need to change bad habits. Paul's talking about something far greater than changing a few habits that annoy us or annoy our friends or family members. He's wanting to see that since God has changed us, we now have the power to live a changed life. Since God has changed us, we now have the power to live a changed life. So here's the main point we're going to focus on over these next couple of weeks here from Colossians 3. It's very simple and very short. Be who you already are in Jesus. Be who you already are in Jesus. You, I could have said live like you already are in Jesus, but, but be, live your life, function in how you are as you already are in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be fleshing out both this week and next, and maybe the next, depending on how long we spend next week in the rest of Colossians chapter 3. And so, um, so this week we're going to focus on putting off the sin that once dominated our lives, and then we're going to turn to putting on how we might live like Christ. So put off and put on. And so let's gonna, we're going to work our way through these verses, and we're going to look first, the first point here this morning, Who you are comes before what you do. Who you are comes before what you do. And so look back with me at verses 2 and 3. We talked about these verses last week, and Paul writes this. He says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
This is the who you are part. You've died, Paul says. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's now your status. That's now who you are. You've died and you've risen with Christ. His life is your life. So now look at verse 5. Let's put these two things together. Put to death what is earthly in you. So this is the what you do. So the who you are and the what you do. And specifically, Paul says, what you do because of who you are is you put to death what is earthly in you. And so we could say it like this. Those who are alive in Christ put to death the sin that wars against us, that wars against our hearts, and the sin that ultimately wars against Christ. And so if, if you're kind of a grammar nerd, you know, theologians actually pick up the grammar here. It's the difference between the indicative and the imperative. And, and the indicative and the imperative refer to the, the mood of the verb. And it's, the mood of the verb isn't like, is it happy or is it sad or is it disappointed? But, but the mood then of the verb is indicative is to be, have a statement of truth. You have died. The imperative is the command, put to death. And so why this is important is because you'll find that God just doesn't go around in the Bible throwing commands at arrows like people, right? That's, the, that's maybe the common misperception about Christianity. It's just a bunch of rules that everybody needs to follow, and if you don't follow them, then you're going to be in trouble. But in fact, from the very beginning, it's all about the indicative, who you are driving what you do, the command, the imperative, and we see it in, in Exodus chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He delivered. Now, therefore, here's how you might obey me. And so here we have that same pattern. Here's who you are. You are alive in Christ. You have died with him. You have risen with him. Now, therefore, put to death what is earthly among you. So, you know, this is really important because if you start with the command, you're going to try to, and try to work your way back to God, what's just going to happen is you're going to inevitably, you're going to start kind of trying to run the bases, trying to even the score with God and make him like you all the more. You know, we saw this in the book of Galatians. Um, to help the gospel is to hurt the gospel. And so the more we try to kind of add to and say, you know, if I could just do this, then God would love me more. Or if I was just more like that, then he would accept me. It's actually, it's completely backwards and it's against the good news. It's he has done this for you. Now, therefore, live this out. You have been made alive. Now, therefore, put to death and enliven that which now is within you. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't, so that when we talk about the indicative and the imperative and we talk about God's grace, it doesn't mean that we don't have an active part in our growth. We do, actually. We, we don't contribute anything to our justification, to be justified and made righteous before God. We put our faith in Christ and in his finished work. But in our sanctification, when we're made holy, what we're being made holy, we're actually participating in it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we've been made alive, we are now actually able to obey and to grow. And so we're striving after these things. And so, now here's the very specific command we see here in our passage. Put to death. So I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about this command and what it means and how we might do it practically. 
So we could say this, what does it mean to put these things to death? You know, the old word in, in English was to mortify or mortification. You know, that mortification sounds kind of something like what you would do in Lord of the Rings. Like in Mordor, you would mortify. It's, it's kind of the old way of saying to kill. But in, rather than have to say to put to death is kind of a phrase every time, they would say we're called to mortify our flesh. Put to death the, the deeds of the body. And while you've been changed from death to life, we still all live in this world and we're still assailed every day of our lives by the sin of our own flesh, the the devil who would seek to distract us and take our eyes off of Christ who's seated above, like he said at the beginning of Colossians. And we live in the world that's full of temptations. And so being made holy is fighting against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and in this fight, you seek to kill the sin. And so you don't set your, your kind of gun to stun like they might have in Star Trek. You set your gun to kill, in particular, sin. Well, let me, let me you know, I might have mentioned, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this a few years ago because it was a big deal. I thought it was cool. We, when we went um, hiking down in Tennessee a couple of years ago, we were, we were hiking and a, um, we were on a trail and it was a really, really crowded trail. It's one of these trails that everybody goes on in the Smoky Mountains. And so I said to the kids, You're not, we're not going to see a bear here. There's no way we're going to see a bear. And we did see a bear. And in fact, the bear, where there's a huge crowd of people walking down the side of this um, kind of, I don't know if it's a mountain or a hill. And as we're coming down the path, the bear kind of goes right in between all of us. And it was a small bear, and it was a black bear, and people were just so excited to see it. Nobody really seemed all that concerned. You know, it's just kind of, well, I, I was taking a video of it, actually, and so I'm walking backwards, but I'm still wanting to make sure I'm getting a, a good video. And so, you know, it was a wild animal, and there was a park ranger actually right there, which made me think, what gives? You know, do they have these things, like, do they just follow around the bears? Is this like Disney World with, like, a, something in a costume, and they have a handler. I mean, but anyway, there's a park ranger right there, and they're telling everybody, get back, stay back, and, and, and everything. But people weren't bothered. Now, imagine this, though. Imagine if you were up in Alaska, and you came around, and you were hiking, and whether you were with a big group of people or not, you came around a corner, and there was a nine-foot grizzly bear, a, a mama grizzly bear with her cubs, and you surprised her. And all of a sudden, she got really angry and she kind of reared up and she started frothing at the mouth and started charging you. You would do anything you could in that moment to get away from that bear. You'd drop your phone. You wouldn't be trying to take a video. You would be running or, or backing up, whatever you're supposed to do really slowly or curling into a ball. You would just, you'd become undone. And if you had, apologies to animal activists, if you had the opportunity to kill that bear in that moment, or be killed, you would kill that bear. And so the seriousness of the situation would dictate your response and how you recognized how serious it was. Now I think as, as we all think about sin, I think that we're tempted to think of the danger that sin places in us in far more like that kind of black bear, the young black bear that just kind of walks across. The, yeah, yeah, if you, if you poke it, it's going to create a problem for you. But really, it's not that big a deal. And so we, we can skirt near the edge of sin or of danger because either because we don't believe that the danger is really that great or pridefully, we think that we're strong enough to handle it. But the real state of affairs 
And what Paul continues to bring our attention to and what we see throughout Scripture is that sin is like the grizzly at full charge coming for our throats whether we recognize it or not. And so in that way, we don't coddle sin. We don't bring it close to us and try to tame it or just coexist in the same space with it. Now that you're a Christian, you've been made alive so that you are able to see sin for what it is. Before, before you were a Christian, you might have just excused sin. You might have just ever, actually maybe not thought that much. I remember when I first became a Christian, I started to realize, boy, there's all this stuff that is against God and I never even knew it. And that's an evidence that God is working in you by the power of his spirit showing you there are things that are against him in this world. And so now that you're a Christian, now that you're alive, your eyes are open and you're able to see that sin is deadly, it's dangerous, it's deceptive, and it brings disastrous consequences to your life. And so you want to do all you can to put that sin to death. So when Paul says here, put to death, what, what he's referring to, he says, is, what is the earthly nature. That which is of the flesh, that which is our, our flesh is just a way of kind of saying what we are naturally drawn to in this world. You ever wonder why are things so tempting to us? It's because our, our flesh is kind of drawn like a magnet towards certain things. We might know they're wrong, and at the same time, our flesh is drawn towards them. And so to kill sin, to put to death the earthly nature, is to not allow that kind of thinking to mark us any longer. And so one way, if we're to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, like Paul says in verse 1 and 2, then one way we can mortify or we can kill sin is by cutting off that kind of thinking and say, we're not going to allow that kind of thinking to mark me any longer. I was once drawn towards that. I'm now turning away from it. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 3 says it in verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You notice there, sin deceives. It, it hardens. And so we need to put it to death. The longer we have it kind of coexisting, and the longer we're kind of just fine with us right around it, we, we, get, we kind of get used to it. Kind of like maybe bringing a wild animal into your house. And, and maybe it's okay for a little while, but eventually it's going to turn on you. Sin deceives. It hardens. It's deadly. It's dangerous. It's deceptive. And it's going to bring disastrous consequences. And so seek to put to death what is earthly within you. So now, how do we do that practically? That's where Paul starts to turn. And so there's a number of, there's two lists here that he gives in what we are to put to death. And then there is a list of what we are to enliven in our own hearts and how we are to live like Christ. And so we're really going to focus on the first of the list he's talking about putting to death. And this first of the lists is all about kind of sexuality and sexual, in particular, sexual immorality. And the second list is really about uh, personal relationships. Now we're going to spend most of our time here in this first category. And so we could say it this way, practical mortification 101. 
put to death sexual immorality. So look with me here at verse, I believe it's verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, he says, idolatry. You know, sexual immorality, let's define that there. It's any sexual activity with another person that God intends to be between one man and one woman within the bounds of marriage. And so sexual immorality then is a broad category. It's any activity, sexual activity, with another person that's not your husband or your wife. He intends it to be between one man and one woman within the bounds of marriage. And in this way, God created sexual intimacy for our good, and he created it for our enjoyment. And he created it so that we might populate the earth. But this gift from God has been perverted by the, the fall into sin. It's been twisted. And one of the ways it's been twisted, it's twisted in different ways in, in every generation. But right now in our culture, particularly in our generation, the way it's been twisted is that sexuality is treated as the main identity of a person. Our, our culture says that your sexuality equals your identity. But to have sexuality as the definition of our personhood, it's a perversion because it, although it's one aspect of a healthy marriage, it doesn't define who we are in totality. If it did, Jesus himself as a single man wouldn't be truly able to experience humanity. And so one way that we can put sexual immorality to death is by fighting against the lie that if you're not sexually fulfilled in all of the ways the world tells you you should be, then you are incomplete. That's a lie. It's taking what is a gift and it's making it primary. It's making it as an identity rather than what it should be as a gift from God. And it's a gift from God in a way and not, not all people will enjoy, so it should not be the primary identifier for us as a person. But Paul goes on here. It's not just the act of sexual immorality, but it's also the thought, he, you know, impurity, he says. He goes on to say, in passion, kind of being ruled by the passions of our flesh and desires. You know, Paul uses the category evil desire, reminding us that engaging in sexual immorality is evil because it's against God. That's not how our culture talks about sexual immorality. It celebrates. But then Paul goes on and he says, covetousness which we probably think most naturally about in envying something, that we're coveting it, that we're wanting it. And so almost like we just very naturally think materialism. But in this context here, Paul's actually pulling out Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments when Moses is given the commandments by God and one of the things that they're told not to covet is their neighbor's wife. And so there's a possibility that we can be coveting other people that we can be longing for them with wrong desires. And so this is what Paul says. This is idolatry. It's it's putting something in the place of God to worship an idol and worshiping that thing. So the question you might want to ask yourself is this. Am I worshiping the gift of sexual intimacy by making it primary in my life? 
by putting it of first importance. Whether you're single or married, it's possible to put this as the highest of first importance. And so in a way, we can begin to worship this gift, not the creator. You could ask yourself, am I the one who's defining what true sexuality is and then worshiping my creation, my definition of that sexuality, just like somebody might create kind of idols out of wood or stone and kind of bow down and worship what they just carved with their hands? We can do it even in our minds. This idea of what we think will actually make us fulfilled, we then begin to think about it. And we begin to dwell on it. And we begin to long for it. And we begin to covet it. And then we begin to worship it. And so our culture has normalized what the Bible would refer to as sexual immorality and made those who would define true biblical sexuality as being repressive or prudish that we wouldn't understand progress. You know, I love Carl Truman's book. He, and I'm forgetting the title off, um, right off the top of my head, uh, but here he's, he writes this. It's about kind of thinking about sexuality and how did we get to where we are. He says this, To be free is to be sexually liberated. To be happy is to be affirmed in that liberation. That's what he's saying. It's his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That's what he's saying is, is how our culture talks. To be free, to be truly free, is to be sexually liberated. And so then, under that definition, if you're truly free, to be happy is to be affirmed in that, li- in that liberation. So the, the question of why can't people just let people do what they want to do in their bedrooms and, not be, and just be happy with it, don't ask, don't tell kind of way. Why all of a sudden is there persecution against those who would say that certain things are against what God designs? And the answer is because if we've defined freedom as being sexually liberated, then we need to be affirmed in that freedom or we're not going to feel free. But look at how, what Paul, look at how Paul summarizes in verse 6. Very starkly, very plainly, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so our culture, we just have to remind ourselves, the water we're swimming in, the air we're breathing right now, affirms what Paul says the wrath of God will judge. You know, the twisted nature of the world, the perversions, The sadness that we see, just think of the grief that is caused by heading down these paths in this list that Paul describes here. The passions, the sexual immorality, all of the pain that that's caused, all of the victims that it has left in its wake. And Paul says, as a result of worshiping the creation rather than the creator, that's not going to last forever because the judgment of God is actually coming. And that's heavy. And so how do we kind of hold these things in tension? How do we think about this? That we think rightly about sexual immorality, that we seek to put it to death, that we recognize the heaviness of it because the wrath of God is coming, and yet we acknowledge, like I heard Ray Ortland Jr. say one time, we're all sexually broken in some way because we live in this world and our minds and our thoughts have been shaped right, rightly and wrongly. What I want us to see here is there is hope in these verses for the broken. There is hope for the sexually immoral. There's hope for the one who's consumed with lust. Paul tells us that 
change is possible. So look with me at verse 7. He says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, Alistair Wilson says, However darkly Paul presents these sinful acts, he does not regard them as placing a person beyond hope. He says, In these two you once walked. You might have used to live this way. You might be tempted to continue living in this way even though you know it's wrong as a Christian. You might have celebrated your sexuality as your main identifier in your life and you might have pursued it because you thought it would make you whole until you realized that what the world celebrates is, and is actually dismantled, it actually dismantled you and discouraged you and disheartened you from the inside out because you were placing all your hope in your wrong thing. But now, still in your minds, you're tempted to head back those way, that same way. And so what you need to hear is, change is possible, no matter if this is how you've lived your life since you were a preteen or how you're even living your life now in great despair. You can say, by God's grace, in these you once walked. It can be in the rearview mirror. You can start to see some growth here. But where do you turn if you feel like you can't change. When you feel so discouraged, where do you go? You know, you might have heard the phrase, um, past performance is an indicator of future results. And usually that phrase is used in in job interviews. When an applicant is, um, what they've done in the past is used as a predictor of what they will do in a future job. Past performance is an indicator of future results. And, and that's a good way. I mean, we used it when we assess church planters to look at one of the things, what have they started in the past and how have they grown. And it's a good indicator. But I think what we naturally do is we start to naturally apply that same question into our own lives and it becomes horribly and terribly discouraging. Past performance is an indicator of future results. And so we think, well, I've never really seen any growth in this area, so why should I start now and why in the world would this actually ever change? We can look backward and we can say, see, I actually won't change and I've got years to prove it. Now, here's what I think we should do. I think we should look back, but I just don't think we should look back in that way, the way our hearts would tell us to look back, to be looking back with condemnation. We should look back at a past performance that indicates future success, except the past performance isn't our performance. It's what Jesus has done on the cross, that he did what we could never do. He obeyed to the, full, to the fullness to the point when he would say, it is finished, and he paid for all of your sin at the cross so that you could say, there is no condemnation for me who is in Christ Jesus. It means that the defining moment in our struggle against sin was accomplished because the power of sin was broken. We became, here's indicative, we became children of God. We became cleansed. We became forgiven. We became set free. And so what that means is we have to approach the imperatives, the commands to kind of fight against, to put off sexual immorality, not as this command that's going to be impossible, but to say, look at what God's already done. He has made me new. He has changed me. And now I'm able to start fighting against this sin effectively because of the work of Christ, because of what he's done in the past. 
I am able to obey now. And so what this means is we've been set free to strive for holiness. You know, we started with 1 Peter chapter 1, kind of quoting Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. And that's just not this impossibility. That's our call and it's possible because of who you are in Jesus. You are a child of God. You know, notice again verse 7 and 8. It says, in these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And so what this means is there's a decision bound up in this verse. Are you going to put away what seems to come so naturally to you? To set your mind on things above is not to dwell and think about the things that once promised happiness to you. Or so are you going to decide and decide maybe even this day, I'm going to put these things all away. And maybe, and I would encourage you in this way, if you're going to decide that and the thing that might be different to actually put them away might need to be that you talk to a close friend and say, this is something I need help in because it's not working. Because when I fight against this, I'm just in this cycle of kind of, sickness, uh, kind of spiraling downward in my mind. I need help. And so, there's natural ways the, the world talks about intimacy. We're not going to talk about the, the next list here this morning, but, but look at how he summarizes. He says this, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So Paul's using this language, put off, to put on, just like somebody would put off an old or stained garment and they would put on a new one, a new clean set of clothes. And so he's going to turn and he's going to begin to talk about the new way of life and how we're to live and what we are to put on. And so what we need to recognize is there's beauty here. Even in these commands that seem heavy. Because we remember, God found us stained with sin. He found us unable to clean off the sin that was kind of an indelible written with indelible ink against our hearts and it constantly was saying I am against God and I can do nothing to make myself better and what he did is he paid the price to cleanse us to make us clean that we're forgiven as white as snow and so when he looks at us he doesn't see those dirty clothes anymore he sees the righteousness of Christ that he has clothed you with. And so he took off your shoulders that burden of sin. He took away your stains that you couldn't clean. He took all the things that you continued to run after and continue to run after even now and he stops you in your tracks and, say, and says, remember, remember the indicative, who you are. You are a child of God. You're now empowered by the Spirit living within you to live for me. But as long as we live on this earth, we're going to be battling against indwelling sin and temptation. And so he's calling us, put off what is earthly, put away the sin that clings so closely, and put on Christ. Because remember, our call is to be who we already are in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as we started this morning and we sang, all because of Jesus, I'm alive. 
We resonate with that truth and we need to remind ourselves all the more it's only because of Jesus that we're alive. It's nothing that we have done. We have not been able to make ourselves rise up out of the grave of sin, but you have done that for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to set our eyes on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That we would be seeking him with our whole heart. That we would be recognizing in him alone is all our righteousness. We thank you for our salvation. We give you praise. Oh, Father, would you help us to be people who put away, to put off those sins which cling so closely and let us run after Christ together. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.